everyone. Welcome back to Rainy Days Podcast, number four. Yes, I can count. Um, it's been a few weeks since we came out with the last one. Um, both Nikki and I have been busy doing some other creative uh, pursuits, but are happy to be back at it. And this week's episode uh, is with Ann Powers, um, who is a premier critic who grew up in the Northwest um, and now is at NPR. Um, but she was formerly with the New York Times pop music critic and has also been a contributor to the LA Times. I know she interviewed Prince a couple of years ago, um, as well as being an editor for The Village Voice. Um, but the high point, probably, of her writing career would be working at The Rocket uh, <laughs> in the late 80s and mid-90s. The Rocket was pretty much the premier uh, local music community paper uh, in Seattle and the Northwest. So. Actually, when Goodness was on the cover, it kind of like was mind-blowing experience. Um, but uh, I think the last time Anne and I, there were years went by. I think we met in mid-80s probably. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she, her friend Shirley Carlson was the uh, program director at KCMU, um, which was at the University of Washington and later became KXP, of course. Um, and her friend Shirley had uh, Shadow on to do a uh, new music or audio oasis show and uh, ended up being kind of a ridiculous, uh, I don't know what you call it, session. <laughs> I think some people's uh, voices hadn't quite changed in the band at that point. Uh, but it was a lot of fun and I think Anna and I went out to some shows after that and kind of became friends. Um, but there were years went by and I didn't see her. And then I think in like mid nineties, um, I saw her across the stage where, uh, goodness was opening up for Pearl Jam and I saw her across the stage and I was like, Anne? And she was like, Danny? She's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm working. Anyways, uh, it was nice to catch up with her. It was great to talk to her today. Um, and she, uh, she's also an author besides, uh, writing for all these, uh, magazines and papers. Uh, she wrote uh, Bohemians Like Us, and her latest book was Good Booty. Uh, but one thing I wanted to say before we start this episode is that Nikki, Nikki Barron and I, Nikki Barron is the editor, um, both love doing the podcast, and um, it would really help us out if you could um, subscribe to our show um, on the website and on uh, YouTube. So, thank you for that, and actually there may be a little extra music on this episode. We'll have to see if Nikki edited it in or not. Um, so that, that could be a special treat for y'all. Um, anyways, cheers, enjoy, Ann Powers, she's awesome, and uh, take care of yourselves. Bye. Ann, it's a pleasure to have you on here. I haven't talked to you in a long time. I know. Um, I think the last time I actually saw you in person was in... Uh, Missoula in 96 yes, at the Pearl on, Jam show. On stage, yeah. We right. Met on stage. Yeah, right. We, 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 we opened up for Pearl Jam and it was, it was super fun at Grizzly Stadiums. And then uh, I was like, wait a minute, there's Ann Powers. That's weird. And yes. that was back when you were writing for uh, New York Times. Yes, yes, that's right. I, I flew out to do that piece. And um, yeah, because uh, I, I wrote about Pearl Jam again. For the LA Times, it was like the first piece I did, big feature I did for the LA Times, which had been 2005 or 2006. But for that, I just came to Seattle. I remember Ed would only meet me in the basement of Easy Street Records. Like I had to go not only into the, that's the one in West <laughs> Seattle, right? Not only like into the store, but into the basement. And he was like sitting there at a little table. <laughs> I'm like, come on, dude. <laughs> yeah, well, him and Matt are pretty close. That's probably like his, you know, his um, Reichstag uh, bunker. Yes, <laughs> it felt a bit. It felt a bit like that, but it was also nice because it was like local, uh, local color, whatever, you know. Well, and that's one thing I've been sort of realizing during all this downtime with the pandemic. I mean, I live just across the water in Vashon, and so my Seattle especially with the, the bridge went down. I don't know if you knew that, but the yeah. Westdale Bridge is non-functioning. Yeah. Um, so the whole community kind of coalesced over there. That's sort of my Seattle these days in a big part. Yeah. Also because if I go to South Lake Union, I get completely lost oh, and have to resort to my phone because it all looks like, you know, Southern California. It's oh, weird. I know. It's funny. No slag on Southern California. No, hey, there's some great places in Southern California, but... 
I, I that ha- that happened a few years ago when I used to come back to visit. I would always whoever was with me, you know, I'd be like, oh, I'll give you the Ann Powers tour of Seattle, and you know, take them by where Scoochies was or where the doghouse was. Or now I can't even find like the former locations of those places. It's so different than all right. of my landmarks are gone. Even the even the giant toe is gone. I think. An, oh, is the elephant car wash gone? I, I they back. just they just took the elephant car wash out. I think the only thing that's left is the drunk the park for drunks. I oh, mean, oh my god, that's so crazy! It's right. like I don't know, and and I haven't been back to Magnolia since my mom uh, passed away, and we sold that house. But I'm sure that's totally different too. But I still believe that the spirit of the city is intact in one way or another. I mean, I'm always interested in whatever sounds are coming out of Seattle, you know, whatever new musical movement is happening. So it's been interesting, Danny, since our time together back in the day, how many cycles of that there have been, you know, but right. I, when I started doing this podcast, it was, I talked to, um, a good friend of mine who was the radio person for the um, Fleet Foxes at Sub Pop. Mm. And she was like, well, why don't you interview, you know, Robin? And why don't you interview Sarah Cahoon? And and there were all these people. And that was the decade that I happened to take off when I had three kids and a farm and all that, right. you know, that period <laughs> where you're like, whoa, what just happened? I know. Um, so, yeah, there's these other, these other um, you know, rings in the Seattle tree that I just have not had time to explore. I've heard some of the music, um, but I don't, I haven't had a chance to meet the artists yeah. Um, in person even, or talk with them even even more recently there's a new generation of like the hardly art bands and all the feminist right. punk bands and chastity belt and chastity belt you know all of those those bands childbirth and um all, that's just like an amazing scene too so um and of course hip-hop and r&b and and so much is, ha- is happening i i was able to stay in touch with that stuff obviously as a music writer but also because uh, the pop conference, this annual event that we did, um, that my husband Eric Weisbard organized for a lot of years. I was reading about that. Yeah, yeah. Mike McCready actually um, did our keynote once. And did he tell you he brought the article I wrote about you guys uh, in the <laughs> University of Washington paper? And he gave me a copy of it on stage. It was he super gave cool. me so many funny pictures. I didn't put half of them that he gave me into the podcast. But that prom picture was insane. <laughs> yeah, no, the prom picture was super funny. And and actually, my date got in touch with me and, and was like, you know, I was really young then. I'm like, uh, I think we I think we all were. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what prom is all about. <laughs> yeah, vaguely confused, slightly randy, too many yeah. drinks. Yeah. Um, or maybe I have the vaguely confused mixed up with the yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I I haven't had. I mean, I've gone from rock back sort of more to roots um, and a little bit of punk. But my education in hip hop is is still lacking. I probably lean more towards learning about reggae than hip-hop first but that's sort of my island thing probably uh, that um, makes sense that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> but why don't we why don't we talk about uh writing in the rocket and, yeah. and kind of go back take a take a little deep dive back we don't have to stay there but just for people who don't know right uh, ann powers is a seattleite and did grow up uh in the 80s i did I did. And um, I got my start writing for the rocket when I was in high school and oh. I was at Blanchett and uh, I was writing for the high school newspaper and the Blanchett miter it was called. And uh, I would write about the new wave bands of the time. Right. So like I wrote about the heaters and the cowboys and oh, stuff. I remember those bands. Yeah. And this is, you were probably like in grade school. <laughs> No, 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 no. I was, um, I mean, they were the local celebs. Right. I mean, the heaters for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And, and I, my cousin had, my cousin Greg Powers was in this really crazy band called Fred. And they were a combination of like Captain Beefheart. They were, it was, Greg is a trombonist and he was at University of Washington in the music department, right? So he and his friend Jeff McGrath, who was a trumpeter, and a bunch of their other friends 
formed a punk band. So it was like weird kind of classical new music meets Captain Beefheart meets um, just wild punk. And they were named after Fred Rogers and, and they had this <laughs> singer who looked like uh, his name was Kurt Dinky, and he looked like the Dutch boy on um, Dutch boy paint cans, you know, right. <laughs> with that haircut. And um, actually, you can Jeff McGrath uh, just put up a bunch of this Fred stuff online. You can find it at his website, jeffmcgrath.com. Anyway, that was sort of, you know, my cousin was in this band. My boyfriend at the time was a best friend of my cousin, and my my best friend, whose name was Nora Caria, and I used to, um, we would do things like uh, performance art type stuff. Like one time, I remember we had a tea party on stage while they played, you know, and we were wearing like <laughs> art t-shirts and, and everybody had like sideways ponytails. We idolized the B-52s and, you know, we'd just look like a bunch of weirdos. And there was another band, um, Oh gosh, mental mannequin, and that was Gordon Raphael, and he went on to uh, produce the first album by The Strokes. And, oh, interesting! Uh, I yeah, thought that name sounded slightly familiar. Yeah, I mean, it was. This is like the total obscure. And then the other, and they had a singer named Pony. She was like the most glamorous woman I'd ever seen in my life. And I remember one time going to a show. I think it was the one where we did the tea party. And it was at the this weird like veterans hall or something down at the foot of Queen Anne, and um, Pony and Gordon date were dating at the time. And I remember walking into this weird venue, and they're kissing, and they're both in leather leggings, like cool new wave shirts on, and they're kissing. And I'm like, oh my god, that is like the most glamorous rock and roll thing I've ever seen in my life. These beautiful people. <laughs> so that was my thing. And then there was a band called Mr. Up and the Calculations. Yeah. Mark Arm. Yeah. That was Mark's band. And yeah. uh, Joe Smitty was the singer of, in that band. That was the loudest band I ever saw when I now, was. Now, did you know you were an English major at the UW? Was Mark still going there when you were there? He was, but you know, he was there. Yeah. Charles Peterson was there. All those guys were there. I was like, not cool enough for them to talk to mostly i <laughs> i would go to parties and like stand in the kitchen or whatever they wouldn't talk to me now they i mean later they would talk to me charles was nice <laughs> <laughs> oh no tom price he was around the u-men yeah and he was yeah. the nicest guy he would always talk to us uh you know us awkward girls who are standing in the kitchen and i feel like he's a he's a big um he's a good you know, deep thinker i guess a big sci-fi yes. fan and i i enjoy it talking to him yeah. um yeah they just yeah. had that u-man retrospective that tub pop put it out yeah yeah ago. yeah yeah they were a great band i mean they, i think you know mr f was like pure noise um so loud and then right. u-men were a little more there was some like tuneful garagey element to what they did that that i liked a lot oh and i, I mean i could tell you many other bands from that era, another that I loved was the Blackouts. And that was um, Roland Barker was in that band. And then Bill Rieflin, who sadly passed away not too long ago. But he went on to be, you know, a really pretty well-known drummer. He played with Ministry and he played with R.E.M. Right, uh, right. I knew that. Yeah. Now, Bill, I will just bore you with a story about Bill. So um, when I moved to San Francisco, so I moved to San Francisco when I was 19. And um, wow, that's really young. Yeah, I was very young. Uh, and I went there and I didn't know what the hell I was doing, really. And uh, I just needed to get out of Seattle and I, I, I wanted to be a poet or something. And I got a job in an Italian restaurant, which I totally bombed because I couldn't carry a plate. <laughs> and I, the, I kept dropping the plates. So then there was Tower Records. And I used to like love the Tower. Um, on Mercer Street in, in Seattle and hang out there with my friend Nora all the time. And so here's this Tower Records on Columbus and Bay and San Francisco. And I'm like, oh, my God, if only I could get a job at Tower Records, I'd be the coolest person in the universe, you know? <laughs> and I, I really thought, even though I had already written for The Rocket for like several years, I just thought I cannot be cool enough to work at Tower Records. But I worked up my courage after I got fired from the restaurant and I walked in and the person behind 
the counter was this guy named Miles Boysen. And Miles had been in a band in Seattle called Face Ditch with a guy named Fred Challoner and some other people. And they were like this really out jazz weirdo band. They were good friends with my cousin and the band Fred. And then um, Miles was there. And then I got the job. And then Bill also worked there, Bill Rieflin from the Blackouts. And so we became friends. And he just was such a lovely guy. And uh, I remember when he joined ministry, going to see him at the I-Beam in, in San Francisco. And Bill had always been so just a, a sweetheart and uh, really into esoteric things. We used to talk about like Gurdjieff and Robert Fripp. He'd gone to that Robert Fripp guitar camp thing. Um, and he was like really into esoteric occult stuff. And I was kind of into that stuff too at the time. I was very witchy. <laughs> and I went to see him at, at this ministry show. And I remember him leaning down to talk to me from the stage. And he was like smoking a cigarette. And I thought, Bill's been corrupted by Al Jorgensen. He never smoked before. Like, look at him now. He's like a creepy, gross rock star. <laughs> anyway. Um, so that was my scene, like pre-grunge kind of until I met you, Danny, and I met uh, the Shadow Boys because uh, my friend Shirley and I uh, decided at about age 18 that we were jaded and sick of like art, music and punk. And we needed to find like some real rock and roll. And somehow we found you. <laughs> Um, talking at you because I'm going to start a new subscription thing on my website. It's called The Homestead. And um, it's been a crazy couple of years and things have opened up a little bit. And they'll probably open up more next spring uh, for more shows and more communication. But I wanted to find a way to get some of the music out that I've been working on um, in a way that isn't just broadcasting at people over social media. So I've decided to do a subscription service. Um, it's called The Homestead through my website, Danny Nukem Music. And if you sign up, you get uh, outtakes, you get songs that I've recorded over the past year, um, as well as some behind the scenes. I'll be working on songs and sharing things like that. Um, I don't know about the farm picks. We'll have to see about that. Animals just won't cooperate. Uh, but, um, just wanted to have, be able to have a conversation and one that was not, uh, dictated by Facebook. So if you're interested in hearing, um, unreleased material or getting released, unreleased material before it's released, um, sort of a preview of it all, um, and some benefits for signing up, you get perks, but those, you'll find out about those on my website. Anyways, thanks for supporting me. Thanks for listening to my music. And if you're interested, please sign up, um, support the arts, and stay well. That's funny. Did, was it Shirley that found Shadow? I don't. I don't. Well, I don't know how we found you. I can't hmm. remember how. I seem to remember going to see you like at a roller rink in Linwood or somewhere. Or something. I don't know anything about that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> do I want to revisit that? I probably do. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we played up there. I remember we yeah. played a couple of shows, and all that, all the, all the hashers would come out, and it was a big party. Yeah. Um, well, you and I went to see Def Leppard together. Do you remember that? We did. No, was yes. that, was that the yes. Moore Theater? No, it was a, it was actually at the arena. It was you and me and Rick. I think was there and Shirley. Yes, we did. That, that. sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was yeah. loved the hair metal at that time. I mean, <laughs> I, really. well, Def Leppard at that point in time, yeah, they were kind of the the apex in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, um, there were no poison, but you know. Yeah, no, not quite. But <laughs> um, so one thing about the, t I want to get back to the tea party for a second. Okay. okay yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm fascinated by this whole sort of. I mean, I talked with Matt Vaughn about this a bunch, the Easy Street owner, but sort of what does it mean, you know, to come up, uh, what's your identity as a, as 
a Seattleite, Northwest native, and as a Northwest uh, musician. And it used to be before Seattle was, you know, grungified, um, really DIY. Like there was nothing here. And oh, yeah. so it encouraged you to experiment, you know, yes. if you yes. didn't have, because <clears throat> you weren't going to have access to great studios, you weren't going to have access to, you know, record labels or anything like that. So you kind of had to make up your own scene from the ground up or make up what you thought was cool, you know, a la yes. Andy Wood, or um, there's a million examples out there. And yes. the funny thing was, is that whole thing, which I didn't realize was so cool at the beginning, I got a double dose of, cause I moved down to Olympia and it was around the K records oh. people, Calvin and Nirvana and all that oh, stuff, which yeah. was vehemently their own scene, you know? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I got a double dose of that whole thing, but is that still true? Is that still true for Northwest artists or is that kind of. I think it is. I mean, I think that will always be, well, it's so hard. I, you know, I, I lived in Seattle again um, from 2001 to 2006. And so I don't feel completely out of touch. You know, I'm not right, like, oh, right. I moved in whenever the hell I moved a hundred million years ago. And but so I do think I have a sense of it a little bit post Amazon and Microsoft and stuff. I mean, we both have kids who are like teenagers around that age. Right. And I think it's so different for kids now because they're experimenting on the internet more and in every way, including artistically. But I, I have always found that the Pacific Northwest has been uh, a fruitful place for experimentation and for the avant-garde for a few reasons. One is honestly like the weather you know i mean right, you right. it's it's not so brutal that you're driven away but it's gray enough that you have time to like sit around in some basement with your uh with your friends and do strange things you know and right. another is there's this kind of like outsider uh tradition that runs alongside the working class uh legacy of the city and um, that outsider legacy, I think, it, from the '60s on, it was very much connected to like counterculture and hippie, hippiedom. So right, when right. So when punk emerges, it, it it kind of emerges in this way that's like more like glam, and and even like some there was early on in the '70s, and then there were like like queer punk bands really really early on, and then this strange sort of arty performance arty kind of stuff and you have like roscoe louis gallery you know places like right. that right, um, right yeah and um like there was <laughs> another band called audio letter which was sharon gannon and sue ann harkey and they were also dancers who went to cornish i think and so the cornish scene was right i'm <laughs> just like as long as i'm dropping names like bombs sharon gannon went on to be the one of the two main forces behind Jiva Mukti Yoga, which when yoga exploded in the late 90s, Jiva Mukti was like the place. That's where like Madonna went. It was in New York. Oh, and, and that was her, her salon or? Yeah, her. that was okay. her yoga studio. And, and she and her partner, David Life. And it was the, it like defined that whole yoga my wife would probably know about this. Yeah. I I haven't started yet. I, yeah. I probably need you to. Should ask her because and Sharon is still around and but she was another one who was like my idol. There were these really interesting women in the scene and at that time and that DIY like avant-garde scene. There well, was that was that was true for Olympia too. I oh, mean, really? well, Kathleen well, Hanna and yeah. you know. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And you know, um, Slater Kenny and all yes. of that. Yeah. So that yeah. was very much part of my scene um, when I was that age. Um, but I also think there's sort of an egalitarian uh, yes. thing in the Northwest. Yes. Um, both, yes. yeah, sex-wise, class-wise, whatever. It's kind of like, if you can do it, you know, show me what you got, you know? Yes. Um, I mean, you know, the only thing that we we have to acknowledge now is there's a pretty white scene, although not entirely, you know? I mean, there were some Black artists in the scene and and um, and artists of color. Uh, right. But right. Yeah, that was that. That is the one thing I would say. If I, I love being, I love growing up in Seattle. But if I could have made one choice about my childhood and youth, it would have been to like be in a more a place of more diversity in that way. But yeah, it's 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 funny. Uh, my wife is uh, half Filipino and half uh, German, 
Um, and for her moving out to out of Seattle to Vashon because of the less people of color, it was an issue. Um, mm. But in Seattle, the Asian American um, community is quite large and her family's roots go way back within the community. And, and um, we should note, as we're talking about early Seattle bands, Lulu from the Fastbacks is definitely a yeah. bigger star. So, right, you know, right. I mean, she was there and, and they were like, they were also kind of like role models to me, those women in that, in that band, you know, I mean, they were just way tougher than I would ever be, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know like that. <laughs> well, in uh, different ways. <laughs> well, it's, it's the gender politics. I, I mean, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. I don't want to get too into it because even though I, um, I have thoughts, I am a white male. So it's like, well, you know, what can I say? You can be an ally. Be I, am an ally. ally. I am. I am an ally. Uh, but uh, after years of um, writing with Carrie and writing for a female singer um, and supporting yeah. and, and making music with a female artist, um, a couple of them, um, I definitely, I, I consider, I, I've always considered women equal, I guess, in the arts, because to me, the arts, it's not... I don't know. I guess that's just the way I was raised or the way I came up. But, you know, even after being in Shadow and the Spandex and the Metal, and I, I never liked them. The Metal dudes, they're they're like, they're just one degree away from frat guys. They're yeah. just, you know, and, you know, and, you know, frat guys grow up and I'm sure they'll love tonight. Lots they're of nice frat, frat guys boys. in their women. The metal dudes are often frat guys in their girlfriend's clothes, you know, like literally. <laughs> I remember reading that about the sunset scene, like the Guns N' Roses guys and stuff. Right. But they were, they, they would often steal their girlfriend's clothes and wear their girlfriend's clothes on stage, which I thought give a little credit to them then, you know, right, right. give them the props. <laughs> My lady picked this up. Isn't it nice? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But anyways, <laughs> but, but that's one of the things I've kind of been struck by that may be a little bit different about, about the uh, Northwest scene in general, um, uh, as far as gender is concerned, but mm. But being, yeah. being being in Olympia during the, the Slater Kinney years and stuff like that, and also um, John Goodmanson's a good friend of mine. He produced them and a bunch of um, oh, wow. other female artists as well. So he, so yeah, it, that's always been part of my wheelhouse. So I'm always a little bit um, as who I am as a as a musician, you know, not as a fan. Um, I guess I always feel not not taken aback, but always kind of curious, like oh, where 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 are these um, issues that are keeping women from perform performing and writing music more, you know, as a, as a father of a daughter who does play music, um, but also just as an ally? Yeah, I, well, it's, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, thinking about the Pacific Northwest, in different phases, I think that it has been a very open place for women artists. I, during the 90s, it was, there were some challenges. I think the aesthetic of grunge, and I'm going to say, and Very I know I'm male. using the G yeah. word, the bad right. word, but Olympia was kind of like the the sister city to Seattle in many ways. Like, let's take that right. term literally, right? I mean, that's where Riot Girl happened, but Riot Girl happened, as you know, since you were there, partly in response to the, what felt exclusionary about um, about rock in general. And not necessarily Seattle, but like all rock, <laughs> you know, but I think I think Evergreen, as I understand it, was there was a lot of um, opportunity to study feminist uh, <laughs> ideologies, you know. And I spent so many hours in seminar on on you know other people's identity issues, right. which is great. I mean, I definitely feel like I've been to boot camp. Right, right, um, right. And yeah, that, and 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 in a res in a respectful way. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. No, and I mean that that happened for me at University of Washington. I mean, I took a women's studies class at my freshman year. You know, I went to UW for like a year and a half, and then I went down to to San Francisco. But okay. but um, but I I remember that women's studies class like really blew my mind, and it also threw a lot of stuff into relief for me about rock and roll. You know, because in back in the day, this is in the eighties, right? So it's like there was a lot of anti rock and roll feeling among some feminists and 
And I had to work that out for myself. Like, how can I love the Rolling Stones? How can you love Mick Jagger? I know that was my next question. Yeah, yeah. And I had to kind of work that <laughs> Who out. Who did I not didn't... play Brown Sugar in yes. Texas, right? Well, in Tennessee. They played <laughs> here the other night. I didn't go see them because I'm being COVID cautious. But yeah, they, didn't, they right. didn't play it here either. But, you know, I, I think that's something that's really foundational to my work is, is trying to always think about why do I feel so connected and, and freed by rock and roll, this form that, you know, doesn't exactly have a lot of space for me. It, it has space for me in a certain way, but not in other ways. I mean, there's always resistance. And I think um, even, you know, within nineties, the nineties rock world uh, of there, there's much more consciousness about that than any other era and we can talk about how punk set the scene for that indie music set the scene for that um and by the time we get to pearl jam for example there those guys are very conscientious about it also interesting at that time was all the work that was being done on pro-choice activism and um right. <clears throat> you know they were involved I mean, a lot of the bands were involved with that and and i you know i remember some friends of mine uh, put out a compilation record. I can't remember what the name of it was. That was like raising money for NARAL or something. And and there was just like, that was like the cause, you know? Oh, and something else to turn the subject to a somewhat, you know, harder thing to talk about. But I think Mia Zapata, her life and her death made a big difference in the Seattle scene as far as thinking about these issues and thinking about the safety of women in the scene, you know? Right. It had such a huge impact that that very few people outside of the Pacific Northwest really were that aware of because it happened fairly close to Kurt's death. So it was kind of overlooked, you know? Yeah. Although the repercussions in many ways, I think um, have been stronger and more, more long lasting. Yes. Uh, I yeah. completely agree. Everybody, um, talking at you because I'm going to start a new subscription thing on my website. It's called The Homestead. And um, it's been a crazy couple of years and things have opened up a little bit. And they'll probably open up more next spring uh, for more shows and more communication. But I wanted to find a way to get some of the music out that I've been working on um, in a way that isn't just broadcasting at people over social media. So I've decided to do a subscription service. Um, it's called The Homestead through my website, Any Nuka Music. And if you sign up, you get uh, outtakes, you get songs that are recorded over the past year, um, as well as some behind the scenes. I'll be working on songs and sharing things like that. Um, I don't know about the farm picks. We'll have to see about that. The animals just won't cooperate. Uh, but, um, just wanted to have, be able to have a conversation and one that was not, uh, dictated by Facebook. So if you're interested in hearing, um, unreleased material or getting released, unreleased material before it's released, um, sort of a preview of it all, um, and some benefits for signing up, you get perks, but those, you'll find out about those on my website. Anyways, thanks for supporting me. Thanks for listening to my music. And if you're interested, please sign up, um, support the arts, and stay well. Were, were your parents that, sorry. <laughs> were your parents writers too, or what did, what oh, did they gosh, do? Oh gosh, no. My dad was okay. an accountant at Boeing, and my mom was a homemaker. So right. yeah, no. I mean, my no, not at all. I don't even know how I. It was just something I always did, and then and then, I mean, I always liked to write. But then in high school, honestly, and I've said this many times, I, I fell in love with music, but I had no, I wasn't going to be a musician. I didn't, right. you know, I played classical guitar as a child or whatever, but, and I'd like to sing, but I just didn't, I didn't have, you know, that drive. And um, so I wanted to figure out a way, like, how can I be in the scene? Like, what can I do? 
to mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. be like a a girl hanging out, you know. Right. Right. And and I that's why that's kind of why I started writing. Like I wanted to meet boys in bands, more meet well, girls in bands. And it turns out when it's well done, it's it's extremely um powerful art form of its own. Well, thank um, you. Very good. Yeah. Genius. So I wanted to talk to you. I mean, we've been talking about the Northwest and many things Northwestern, but uh, <laughs> I wanted to uh, hear a little bit about Nashville. Oh yeah. And, and just, and your take on it, because um, I'm a big fan of a lot of the music, you know, that's been percolating out of there and, and have gotten to be a bigger fan of uh, Americana music in general. <laughs> well, you have <laughs> to come to down to the these. Americana Fest. Um, hopefully next year we American fest just took place and it did actually happen in person. Oh, wow. COVID is still pretty bad here. You know, you might've heard, we have some like complicated issues here in Tennessee and um, politically it's been a struggle to, uh, to master the pandemic. But, um, but I will say, I mean, I'm, so I moved to the South, uh, because my husband, Eric, got a job at University of Alabama in 2009. And we were living in L.A. And I uh, I was at the L.A. Times. That was amazing. I mean, I fulfilled right. many dreams, including the ultimate dream of my life, which was interviewing Prince, which I got to do then. <laughs> but um, but And I loved L.A., but, you know, he got a job in Alabama. So off we go to Alabama. We lived there for six years. And... Um, you know, Tuscaloosa wasn't for me. I needed to be in a music town. So I had started coming up to Nashville um, to do events at Americana Fest. And I was like, what is this magical place? <laughs> because, um, you know, it it is a music city more than... It's like Seattle. It's so much like Seattle really? in many ways. Okay. It even looks physically kind of like Seattle. Like we live in this kind of combination. It's a brick it's a brick house that looks on the outside, like kind of like a tutor and on the inside, it's like a craftsman. I mean, it's just that it just looks, you know, with the yards and it looks a lot, a lot of the neighborhoods look like, like a Seattle, Seattle neighborhood. Yeah. It was, it was built in the same era. Like a lot of Nashville architecture dates from around the turn of the 20th century. So, so I immediately felt connected there, but most of all, I felt connected to the fact that it is a, um, it is a musician's town it is a working musician's town right, and right. and much like Seattle, the communities are very tight and long standing. People work with each other for decades. And then yeah. also my, like my other favorite city in America, which is New Orleans, it is one of it is I think they are the only two cities where you can truly be a middle class musician and you don't necessarily have to have other jobs you know because in new orleans it's all based on the tourist economy and playing live which is increasingly true here too for better and worse um in nashville though it's studio work you know there's so much studio work and so many people make records here that you don't even know it's not just the country scene it's like every kind of music and you can be a songwriter you can be a studio musician you can be an engineer you can play uh, you know, have a night, a Thursday night gig in a restaurant or in a bar or something. You, can, you know, there's so many ways to make a living. When I moved here, um, 2015, that that it, that was just like a moment when that felt really, really true. And it was sort of like Seattle was when I moved back there in 2001. You know, that good feeling. Things are growing. There's a lot of excitement. And it's not gone too far. Now, what I fear right now is like it's gotten more, much more expensive here in Nashville. Guess what? Amazon came here and Oracle <laughs> right. is coming here. And, right. you know, that t- that side of it's taking over. And also the tourist industry has gotten a lot bigger here with you might have heard about. I did. The bride, the bachelorette parties. <laughs> yeah, those like cattle cars that drive up and yeah, down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the transportainment. So, so that part yeah. of it's not so great. But, but the, but what I found was that there were all these working musicians who were in. Oh my God, Danny, it's insane! Like you could go to I don't know, like my local cafe, Cafe Rose, my local like bistro, on a Tuesday night. And maybe somebody's a little combos playing. And then afterwards you find out 
that that guy who's on the drums or that woman who's on the bass, you know, made six records with Winona Judd or something. You know, I mean, this is right. like literally when we moved here, our dishwasher broke and the guy who fixed our dishwasher had been on a couple of George Jones records. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, See, Seattle, Seattle doesn't have that kind of studio infrastructure. No. Um, and, no it and it's always been, that's, you know, been a lot of the DIY stuff. Right. Um, and yeah. I wish, I wish it did have more of that now, although, um, the music business has, has changed so much and there's so much less revenue in general from right. making recordings that it's, yes. it's strange. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I wish it had that blue collar, um, middle-class, uh, musician, um, uh, I don't know, group of, group of families. Cause now it's, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that. It feels, Seattle feels very tech to me, you know, yeah. but yeah. well, it's when you, when real estate prices, when, a, when an average family home gets over, you know, 800,000 is the median. Right. I mean, how, I mean, I bought my first house for 165 off an artist in 1997, right. you know? Right. <laughs> right. So, no, I know. And that's, and that's happening here in Nashville, which is what's scary. Like, right. I mean, not to get into too much real estate porn or whatever, but our house is appreciated <laughs> a couple hundred thousand, you know, in, in, a few than, years in like five or six years yeah and and right. we it's not because we've done a lot of work on it you know but i mean i think i think it's going to be interesting to see how nashville evolves we we do have a challenge because tennessee is not a progressive state uh, in terms of the yeah. state government and there is that's got to change doesn't it i mean say again it's got to change at some point the demographics yeah. are changing right i mean well the south is the south the South Ooh. is what the South is. You yeah, know? I mean, sometime if I come down there for Americana Fest, you're gonna we're gonna have to have a drink and you're gonna have to tell me about the South because that's yeah. still like this thing. I'm just like I. Yeah, you know. it's. I mean, there's. I I never thought I'd live in the South. I never thought I'd not live on a coast, yeah. um, and I do miss the coast a lot. But, um, but I found a lot of beauty here and a lot of powerful people. Uh, I always say I love my Southern freaks because they've had to work harder than any other freaks I've ever known. And um, those, there's a lot of power in that, in that resistance right. and that, right. and, and I think you are seeing that. that. Well. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you're seeing that emerge now um, with someone like say Adia Victoria. I don't know if you've heard her new record. I haven't heard her. I, I've heard of her for sure. Um, Jason Isbell played on a record, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. And and T-Bone uh, was part of it, T-Bone nice. Burnett. But she's someone I've known since I moved here and I've watched her evolve and and really become this powerful force, but you know, she has gone through a went through a lot as often like the only black woman in certain scenes, but now she's like really found community here and just become this incredible force. And that is what I love. You know, that yeah, is what I love. Right, right, I have some right. other artists to mention like yeah. Um, that Aaron Ray, who is a great uh, vocalist, beautiful, beautiful vocalist and songwriter. She has a new record coming out produced by Jonathan Wilson that she made out in L.A. But uh, she played on my porch when I first moved here for a little thing for NPR. And now she's really become this beautiful artist. Um, gosh, who else? Well, obviously, Jason and Amanda. Uh, I, there's so many um Kelsey Walden, who is this, she's one of the signings to Oh Boy Records that um, is John Prine's label. Um, right. John's son, Jody, and um, wife Fiona are still running that label. It's just a wonderful home to artists. There's also a great guy uh, from the West Coast, Trey Burt, who just put a record out on Oh Boy. Those are a couple of my favorite um, Nashville records of late. So it just like, it keeps evolving. And I'm so great to see. Well, it, gives, it gives me heart. Yeah. It gives me a lot of heart. I mean, cause yeah. that, I think, um, the, the kind of rock and roll we grew up with the hair metal, the grunge, I mean, everybody, you know, a lot of people died who were in the grunge movement. Um, it, you know, being able to play music and, and, and evolve with a craft, um, that has some traditional, you know, maybe rules, or what form but can evolve too is is you know that sounds great that sounds yeah. like a great place to live that know? makes me want to tell the story of the first music i saw after in that tiny moment when it felt like the pandemic was almost over hot back summer <laughs> as we call it um, i went with some so it was my friend's birthday 
And we decided we would take a chance and go see some outdoor music. And we went down to our local American Legion, which has is just down the block from where I live in Inglewood, in East Nashville. And they have Honky Tonk Tuesdays. If you've ever heard of a podcast called Cocaine and Rhinestones that Tyler Manco does, it's a great country music podcast. But he was one of the founders of this Honky Tonk Tuesdays thing. And so the Legion was having music outside. And it was Chris Scruggs, who... Um, is uh, is an heir to the Scruggs legacy of country music right. and he's an incredible play singer and and Kenny Vaughn was on guitar, one of the best guitar players I've ever seen. Um, he played with Lucinda. He's played with like tons of people. They all he and Chris both play with um, Marty Stewart in the Fabulous Superlatives, which is an amazing band. And they're <laughs> they're just doing like old country songs, and it is. I mean, this is the kind of music you would pay, you know, a hundred yeah. bucks to see or something in a great venue, but it's just in the parking lot. And that's really what Nashville is. Kind of, that's the magic of Nashville is to see these artists that are just going to play in your local backyard, but they're incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. Now that, that idea of community, um, do you know Ian Moore? Yeah. The name I, I know. I don't know if I've ever met him in person, but of course I know who he is. Yeah, he he lives on the island. He's from Texas, and he's he's pretty much a rock star in Texas still. Mm. Um, but he uh, talks a lot about that because he comes from the blues, Texas blues background. Oh yeah, and Austin is very similar. If he was in Austin, I mean, right? That's... Yes, he was from Austin, but he talks a lot about, and he's talked to me. He's been kind of you know, he'll talk to me about. He moved up here 10, 14 years ago, I guess, maybe sixteen now. But he talks a lot about how sort of this conflict between the new and the traditional. Yes. And yes. whereas he can play the music he's playing till he's 85. Right. Yes. But then starts talking about the Seattle music and how, why does he starts asking me questions like, well, why does it always have to be a new band on KXP? Why can't they? Why are they oh, always doing new? That's and interesting. And I'm like, ah, oh, <laughs> I don't know, man. You know? There's a lot of ways to think about that. I mean, I think. Right. I mean, there's X too, right? You could go back to that. There's a total deconstruction of all these different, you know, yes. elements, right? No, totally. I mean, I, I think, you know, new technologies give birth to new music. So, right. you know, right. if you're thinking about like hyper pop, I was having a conversation today with a colleague of mine who's 22 and, you know, they're really into hyper pop, which is like completely synthetic music where there's like pitch shifting all the vocals and it's like, you know, but right. that's something for them that for them really resonates as a non-binary person. It's very much about evolving identities and all this. So that is generationally perfect, you know, um, right. for people who are in their early 20s and maybe some people who are older, too. But um, so I want there to always be a space for the new. But I also do. This is something I think about a lot, like. I want music to be a sustainable lifestyle for all of us. And yeah, I want, you right. know, and it, it horrifies me how musicians are put in this position of you. It's a feast or famine, you know, either you're like LeBron and you're a total rock star, you're making billions of dollars or you're not making any money right now. And right. I, I am hoping and seeing some examples of, you know, kind of alternative systems and trying to be more sustainable. And I think communities like you're talking about sometimes can generate that kind of sustainability through loyal fandom and the willingness of the community to support musicians. At least that's a hope I have. It's even if it's just like, you know, Tuesday night, every Tuesday night, the Fats Kaplan group plays down at the five spot and people come out and they, you know, pass the, bucket and they make a little money that way but it's it's hard it's not it's really tough because musicians are not honored in our society i was i interviewed judy collins a couple years ago for this project i'm working on and she said i asked her you know in the 60s like was it hard for women she said well there were a lot of guys and it was you know probably harder for women but she said I just think it was hard for all musicians because musicians are treated like children in our society. They're yeah. indulged and they're also given no power. And that is the, to, she said, that is the greatest sin of the music industry is to inf infantilize musicians 
And that really resonated. Like, how do you be a working musician? That's like one of the major questions of our That's time. a bad that's a badass quote. I like that. Yeah. yeah. That's great. It's it's um yeah. I, I didn't grow up with musical parents, really acad- super academic parents. Um, and I didn't really it was never brought up as a viable way to be. Right. You know, I did it anyways. But <laughs> But it would be nice if there was more of a place, and and not just music for the arts in general. Yeah, I think um, that's something that you see, you know, like in Canada or Australia or places like that. They have yes. you know, government programs and and things like that. That that um, and and of course the real travesty is that America is such a wealth of great music. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Well, who knows, yeah. Danny? Maybe when we've all, you know. When, when climate change put, puts us all in strange little localized environments where we're all living in tree houses or something, we'll come back to some kind of communal music making and supporting musicians. <laughs> well, the Northwest hippie in me really likes that idea, Anne, so thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been such a treat talking to you. Thank you for uh, taking the time. It's nice it to catch up. It was super fun. Thanks so much. Listening to a sneak peek of feelings by Danny Newcomb featuring Carrie Akri. Subscribe to the homestead at DannyNewcombMusic.com to hear the full song now.